Happy Easter. Easter. <laughs> he is risen. See you online, guys. Hi, Lighthouse family. We want to wish everyone a happy Easter. Hello, Lighthouse. I toast you. Hey, Lighthouse family. It's the Jones family here. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Hi, Lighthouse family. We miss you guys so much. We can all be together tomorrow on a beautiful Easter Sunday. But we will be soon, so just keep the hope, keep the faith, and we'll see you soon. And we're praying that you all stay healthy and safe. God bless you all. Hello, Lighthouse. Hey, Lighthouse family. Hey, Lighthouse family. Happy Easter. Yeah, we miss you guys. Hi, family at Lighthouse. We just want to wish you a happy Easter, and we miss you. God bless you. Happy Easter, Lighthouse family. Mama and Papa and I love you and miss you. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, everybody. Hey there, Lighthouse family. This is Egypt. It's been a while. It's been too long, in fact. I hope all of you and your families are well and enjoying this most holy week. And I pray that you all be blessed. Happy, Happy Easter. Easter. Happy Easter, Lighthouse family. <laughs> Happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, everybody. Have a blessed day. Happy Easter, Lighthouse family. Love you. Virtual hugs. Virtual hugs. Happy Easter, everyone. Happy, Happy Easter, Lighthouse. We love you. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter Sunday. Thank you so much for tuning in. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And let's worship him together.
your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to Father God, uh, we come before you as your family, as your kids, and we need the reminder today that Jesus is our living hope. That because of what he did 2,000 years ago on a very dark, very painful Friday afternoon means something to us today as we walk through this dark valley we find ourselves in. So would you, Holy Spirit, help yourself to this time. I'm so grateful that despite the limitations that have been imposed upon us because of this virus, although we're not able to gather in person together, we can still connect online. And I'm so grateful for our extended family who's joining us even now because because of this, we get to extend it so far beyond who could have fit in this box otherwise. I'm grateful I'm grateful for this time that we get together, Jesus. Glorify yourself in it because we have come to celebrate you. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Uh, He is risen. And this is the part where you guys can respond. He's risen indeed. And Ethan, I'm looking at you. I want you to participate too, son. So he is risen. 
All right. Uh, I am so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're joining us. Apparently, Cheyenne and I are the only two who had to take a shower and actually get dressed this morning. So I hope that you're comfortable. And this is a really, really unique Easter. I mean, typically, Easter Sunday is a huge celebration. We all pull out our most colorful uh, Easter best and put them on. We come to the church hours early to have a big pancake breakfast, and we stuff ourselves with pancakes and eggs and sanctified bacon, because what better way to celebrate the Jewish Messiah being alive, and he has overcome the grave, and he's overcome the law and everything, than having bacon, right? Totally kosher. And then we come and we stuff ourselves into this box, and we celebrate. And there's something wonderful about it. And it's a celebration because we know how the story ends. As we're walking in here, we already know the punchline. Jesus is alive. The grave is empty. And all that that means for us. But this Easter is different. This Easter, many of you, you know, are watching from home. Some of you are joining us even after 10 a.m. Because you're just waiting to make sure that there's no issues with buffering and whatnot. I'm praying that there's not today. Um, Many of you wish that you could be here. And I wish you could as well. I wish I could see your faces. I wish I could give you huge hugs. But the reality is that right now we live in unprecedented times. Something like this has never happened in my lifetime. This is the first Easter like it. Because of the COVID-19 virus, because of the things that we've had to kind of respond to in order to protect people within our community, um, I grieve the fact that we can't be together and and it just feels like, like our world is slightly off its axis, doesn't it? Because we don't know how this story ends. We don't know what the coming days and weeks or even months will hold. And that's uncomfortable. It's not fun. Many of us would like to get through this dark valley we find ourselves in as quickly as possible. And right now our world definitely feels off its axis. And I got to say, it dawned on me this week that as weird as this is for us, I think this is probably the closest Easter to what the disciples felt like on that first Easter morning. Because they too felt like their world was off its axis. They too woke up on that day going, my life is not what I thought it would be a week ago. They found themselves surrounded by the rubble of their expectations. And the week had started so good too, right? They'd followed Jesus into Jerusalem with throngs of people lining the streets and laying their cloaks down in palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're thinking to themselves, this is great. This is... This is what we thought because everybody knows this is the king of Israel coming to reestablish his nation as the preeminent nation in the world. And yet things went south so stinking quickly. Because less than a week later, those same crowds that were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, were shouting, crucify him. And on this first Easter Sunday, those disciples woke up. Jesus was dead, and so was their hope. All of the hope and all of the dreams and all of the expectations that they had loaded onto him and what he was going to mean for the nation of Israel, it was all dead. And as, as much as they knew, it was all buried in the tomb. 
And so as we are journeying through a dark valley, I want to simply try to step into the sandals of those, those disciples on that first Easter Sunday. And I want to try to taste just a little bit of what they might have experienced. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to the book of Luke. And we're going to go to Luke chapter 24. We're going to walk through the first Easter morning. As you're turning to Luke chapter 24, I just want to give a little bit of context of what happened after Jesus died on the cross. Remember, it was Friday. It was still the afternoon. And according to the Jewish calendar, a day begins or a day ends at sundown and a new day begins at sundown. It goes sundown to sundown. So the first day when Jesus breathed his last breath was on Friday afternoon. And the very next day was the Sabbath. It began at sundown. And the Sabbath would run from sundown to sundown, Friday night to Saturday night. And then the third day, Sunday, would begin at sundown on Saturday night. And Jesus, when he breathed his last, it was almost sundown. It wasn't quite. And so there was a rich man, a guy named Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, who had gone to the Roman governor and said, hey, may I take this man's body after it's dead, and may I place it into a tomb to honor him? And the Roman governor gave him permission, and so Joseph took the body down, and there was a whole group of Jesus' disciples, the women in particular. The men had scattered. They were in hiding. The women were there, honoring their rabbi to the very last. And they were grieving on that Friday because they could not even honor him by anointing his body for burial. They couldn't take the typical uh, spices and oils and rub it onto the burial shroud to prepare his body for burial. All they could do is stand back and watch as his broken body was removed from the cross and wrapped in a white linen sheet. And then it was carried slowly to this stranger's graveside, a hole carved out in the mountain. And they followed his body, a body that had borne so many expectations, so many hopes, theirs and for the whole nation of Israel. And they were this first century version of a funeral procession. And then they watched as his body was laying in a cold, dark tomb on the stone floor. And then a massive stone was rolled into place. And as they walked home that day, that dark, dark Friday evening, I can't even begin to imagine the, the mixed emotions that they had. Grief, for sure. Disappointment. Discouragement. Just like, what do we do? Well, for the ladies, they knew that their grief needed to have an outlet. And so even as they grieved his death, they went home and they began to prepare the spices and the oils to anoint his body. And the Sabbath passed. And sundown on Saturday night, the Sabbath was over. They could go and anoint his body, but why would they go out after dark? That would be dangerous. And so they waited until the very first rays of the sun began to rise on Sunday morning. And that is when they went to pay their last respects to the one that they had anticipated was the Messiah. And let's go ahead and pick up the story now in Luke chapter 24, verses 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, 
the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, I've often wondered, the tomb had this massive stone in the way. Were they going to move it themselves? Or were they going to ask the Roman soldiers that had been stationed there uh, to move it for them? Maybe they thought they were going to ask the soldiers to take pity on them and that he would help them so they could pay their last rites. But it was a moot point because when they got there, we read in verse 2 that they found the stone rolled away. But when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. All they saw was the burial shroud on the floor. And can you imagine what was going on in their minds at this point? The grave is standing wide open. Jesus' body is gone. And they have no idea what that means. All they know is this is not what they expected. Verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. We know these to be angels. And anytime people are confronted with an angel, it causes great fear. Like this reverential kind of respect. And that's exactly how the women respond. Verse 5. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But these men who were glowing with like lightning said to them, Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. Be crucified. And on the third day be raised again. And then the women remembered those words. Don't you remember that he said that the son of man must be delivered over. Jesus used the term son of man. He borrowed it from the prophet Daniel. Because Daniel had a vision of one like the Son of Man that was coming on the clouds who was going to redeem God's people. And it was a messianic prophecy, but it didn't carry the same kind of unrealistic expectations that the term Messiah carried with it. People were using the term Messiah left and right, and they had a very clear picture in their mind of what they thought the Messiah was going to be like. He was going to be a conquering king who would come and reestablish Israel as the most preeminent nation in the world. And Jesus was trying to avoid all misguided expectations from the crowds, but also from his disciples. So he chose to refer to himself as the son of man. And before he led his disciples to Jerusalem, he had warned them, hey guys, I just need to tell you, this is not going to play out the way you think it will. You're anticipating that this is going to be a great king coming back into his kingdom kind of moment and that it's going to be wonderful and and everybody's going to celebrate the whole time while we throw off the yoke of Rome. But that's not what's going to happen. You're going to be sorely disappointed if that's what you're holding on to. I am going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. Now, it won't get the last word. The grave and death won't get the last word, but I am still going to suffer. And I need you guys to know that. And for whatever reason, Jesus' disciples could not accept it. Maybe they thought he was talking metaphorically, that he was just saying, hey, it's going to be uncomfortable, so just prepare for that. But for whatever reason, those words bounced off of their minds like water off a duck's back until all of a sudden these women are looking at the empty tomb. And the angels are reminding them, remember, he told you he was going to suffer. Remember, he told you he was going to die. Remember, he told you that the grave couldn't hold him down. And all of a sudden they go, oh my goodness, you're right. He did tell us this. And the angels leave them. And the women grab their, their spices and they run back to the upper room. Now remember, it was really early in the morning. My guess is 
the male disciples were probably still asleep or were just waking up. They were groggy, kind of like when my kids wake up in the morning before Kathy and I, and we're just like, I'm not ready. But the women come bursting in, and they're out of breath, and they're trying to catch their breath so they can tell them what they've seen. We saw, we, we saw the tomb, and it was empty. Jesus' body isn't there. And the angels told us that he's alive. He's alive. Here's something that's really interesting, though. Because we read in verse 10 that it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told the apostles all of this. But the apostles did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. It's funny, on, oftentimes we'll tell the story of Doubting Thomas, right? And we even call him Doubting Thomas because at one point he said, I won't believe that Jesus is alive until I can see the nail holes in his hands and the, 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 the spear piercing in his side. But I want to remind you that every single one of the disciples doubted on this day. Every single one of them had a difficulty accepting what the ladies were telling them because it seemed ridiculous to them. Dead people stayed dead. Rome had killed him. There's no coming back from that. They were good at lots of things, but they were best at ending people's lives. And you know what this tells me? This tells me that, at least for the disciples... Jesus' body wasn't the only thing that was nailed to a cross on that day. Yes, our sins were there as well. But Jesus' body was not the only thing that was nailed to a cross that day. Jesus' body was not the only thing that died on a cross that day. Jesus' body was not the only thing that was buried in that cold, dark tomb that day. Their hopes were also nailed to that cross. Their expectations died that day. And their faith was buried in a tomb that day. And while Jesus' body might be missing, their hopes were still cold and dead and buried in that tomb. Peter, and we know another other disciples as well, but Peter doesn't even take their word for it that Jesus' body is missing. He has to see it with his own eyes. Otherwise, he doesn't believe it. So Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself, what happened? He still doesn't get it. He's seen the empty tomb. He's seen all the evidence, and yet he still can't bring himself to even consider the idea that Jesus might possibly be alive. Now, Luke, in his telling, is going to fast forward a couple hours and a couple miles from that spot to a road that lies between Jerusalem and this town of Emmaus. And he begins to follow two of the disciples who are making the long seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which tells us that they've given up hope. Yes, they've heard that the tomb is empty. They've heard what the women said that the angels told them. They've heard what Peter said, that the tomb is indeed empty, and yet they can't fathom a world where Jesus is still living. Their hope is still cold and dead. And so they're heading home. Maybe Emmaus is their home. Maybe that was just the stopping point for the night. But we'll read in verse 13. The same day, two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. As they were going, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, processing, wondering, where did his body go? Who took it? 
Did somebody overpower Roman soldiers? Is it the Roman soldiers who are playing tricks on us? Maybe it's the Sanhedrin who just want to tease us. What's going on? As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside of them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And I've often wondered what it was that kept them from recognizing him. Was it their grief that blinded them? Was it the fact that he was in a resurrected body that didn't look anything like a man who had just been beaten within an inch of his life and then crucified on a Roman cross just a couple of days before? Or did the Holy Spirit blind their eyes so they could have a conversation with Jesus without realizing who it was? But for whatever reason, they don't recognize him. He's just a stranger on the road to them. And he walks up beside them and he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? (laughs) That's a loaded question. Typically, what are you guys talking about? Oh, we're talking about this or that. But his question will expose them. Remember, Jesus had been labeled a rebel. He'd been condemned. He'd been crucified. And the disciples had gone into hiding for fear that the same thing that happened to him would happen to them. And now here is a total stranger saying, what are you guys talking about? I can imagine that there was a war going on of them wanting to process with someone else and at the same time fear that they'd be found out. And so they're silent for a time. They stood still with their faces downcast. And then one of them finally, a guy named Cleopas, asked, he, he, he responds to this man's question with a question of his own. Well, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Well, what things, Jesus asks him. About Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, was this guy living under a rock? He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all of the people. He did amazing things. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had placed so many hopes on his frail body. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. Man, this is raw still. It just happened. And in addition, some of our women amazed us this morning. Because they went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. It was gone And they they came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And the disciples are are just kind of like, we don't know what to believe. And at this point, Jesus leans in and he changes his posture from being one who's drawing them out to being one who begins to resuscitate their hope. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Now, have you ever wondered what passages Jesus pointed towards? What evidence he was able to give these guys from the Old Testament that suggested that Jesus would actually have to suffer and die? I can think of 
a handful off the top of my head. Obviously, there's Daniel, right? The prophet Daniel who talked about the coming Messiah, the one like the Son of Man. But my guess is that he probably started by pointing back to the Exodus experience. The first Passover. Remember, they've just eaten the Passover meal. They've just come through a a weekend celebration of the Passover. A time when Israel would remember the time that God redeemed his people out of slavery. My guess is Jesus pointed to that and said, hey, I want to remind you that in the same way that God told his people to take a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb out of one of their flocks and invite it into their home and live with it for a week. The kids get to know it. They maybe give it a pet name. People become emotionally connected to this lamb. And then at the end of the week, they were told they needed to kill the lamb, collect its blood, and mark their door frames with it. Which seems ridiculous, seems barbaric, seems like why on earth would he have them do it if it wasn't foreshadowing of something far, far later that God was going to do? And he told them, mark your door frames with this blood because when the angel of the Lord passes through Israel to met out judgment upon the Egyptians, when he comes to bring the 10th and final plague that will break the back of Pharaoh, if he sees the blood, the spirit of God will pass over your home and everybody inside will be safe. And my guess is that Jesus reminded them that on this week, their rabbi, Jesus, had entered Jerusalem, was chosen by the people to save them. And just like the Passover lamb, he was with them for a week and then he was sacrificed on a cross. And his blood was truly atoning for the sins of mankind so that the wrath of God towards our sin would pass over us as well. That's my guess is that's where he started. And then from there, my my guess is that he would have gone to the prophet Isaiah, and particularly Isaiah 53. You can turn there if you want with me. Isaiah was a prophet that uh, spoke a ton of words. A prophet is simply somebody who speaks the words of God. God laid visions upon Isaiah's lips and he put them into words. He wrote them down. And one of the visions that God gave Isaiah in chapter 53 is of a suffering servant. A suffering servant who would give his life and save the people through his suffering. I'm only going to read a portion of it beginning in Isaiah 53 verse 4. And I want you to remember as I read this, that this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years before Jesus suffered on the cross. This was written before Rome was ever a nation or crucifixion was ever invented. And yet, this is what Isaiah said. Surely he, the suffering servant, took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. And the punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All our sins laid upon him. Does this sound familiar to you? He continues in verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You remember that when Jesus was led before the, the high priests, when Jesus was led before Pontius Pilate, he did not try to argue his way out of it. He didn't try to reason his way out of it. He didn't try to beg for mercy. He was silent. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Who said, no, don't do it. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. And he was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. Do you remember where they laid Jesus's body? In a rich man's tomb. Although he had done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth. And we might blame the Jews. We might blame the Romans who carried out his punishment. But we read in verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And now listen to this, because this is one of the most important verses in this entire prophecy. Because he says in verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Yes, The Messiah would need to suffer. Yes, the Messiah would need to die. He would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed under the weight of our sin. But our sins would not get the last word. The grave would not get the last word. God would because of the suffering servant's willingness to place his life for ours. Jesus might have pointed to Psalm 22, perhaps, as another one, or many of the other Psalms. We won't go there, but there are a ton of places he might have gone to explain to his disciples, his doubting disciples, that this wasn't such a, it should not have come as such a surprise, that this was never God's plan B. It was always his plan A. I wonder what the disciples would have felt as they heard Jesus whom they don't know as Jesus, as they heard this stranger explaining the scriptures in a way that they'd never heard them. As they began to link, oh, yeah, I know that this is what Daniel prophesied. I know that this is what Isaiah prophesied. I know that that's what David prophesied in Psalm 22. And I never made the connection of what Jesus went through. I wonder what they were thinking. I wonder if, if their hope was beginning to twitch a little bit. If their faith was beginning to draw its first breath, my guess is that their doubts tried to reassert power over it. That their, that their despair didn't want to go quickly. And they were just full of emotion, regardless of what they felt. We do know this. When they came to Emmaus, 
They didn't want Jesus to go anywhere. They didn't want this stranger to leave him because he had become a ray of light in their otherwise dark existence. So as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. Please don't go anywhere. And so he went in to stay with them. That evening, while he was at the table with them, he took bread and he gave thanks. And he broke it and he began to give it to them in a way that was remarkably reminiscent of the last meal that they had shared with Jesus. Right? When he had broken bread and he gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And in that moment, their eyes were opened. And they recognized the stranger for who he really was. Their rabbi, no, no, their Messiah, living, breathing, right in front of them. He'd been with them the whole time. I can't imagine the emotions that are churning. It's almost like Jesus has just taken the shock paddles and, you know, jump-started their hope. And it's going to take a little bit for their mind to catch up with what their eyes are telling them. I just wonder what Jesus' face would have been like. The way I see it, he kind of like smiles at him like, hey guys, yeah, it's me. And then, then he disappears. Now, we might say he, he walked out the door. My guess is he's in a resurrected body. My guess is he disappeared from their eyes in an instant. But regardless of how it happened, these two men these disciples who had given up hope are left slack-jawed, open-mouthed, just not sure how to process everything. How did we miss this? How did we not recognize him? We've been t- we're, in our, we're in our hearts burning in our chest as he spoke to us on the road. Jesus is alive. He's alive and this this smile begins to creep across their face that have been scowling all day long. Suddenly, hope is beginning to revive. I can't believe he's alive. He's alive. Wait till the disciples hear about this. The disciples. And in that moment, they know what they need to do. So they jump up and they run out the door because this is, this news, the disciples need to hear it. This news is too good to wait till morning. And so they run the last seven miles back from Emmaus to Jerusalem to share the good news. Jesus is alive and so is their hope. One of the things I love about the Easter story is that we watch Jesus's disciples wake up to the magnitude of what's happened. They don't start with a smile on their face. They start with a frown. Their hope is dead. And it takes a lot longer for their hope to be revived than it did for their Lord and Savior to be revived. But make no mistake, as we watch this, their hope is resurrected through this whole process. But the hope that walks out of that grave that day for the disciples is a very different hope than the one that went in. Just as different, I would suggest to you, as the resurrected body that Jesus walked out of the tomb with was different than the one he went in with. Because the hope they went in with was a hope that he would somehow, maybe he's our savior. Maybe he's the one that we've been hearing about. He might be our Messiah. 
He might be the king of the Jews. It's kind of like the hope that Jeff normally has for the Dodgers, right? Tip, mo- most seasons, it's, I hope they win the pennant. Eh, they might not, but I hope they do. This season, it's like, I hope they get to play a couple of games. They might not, but I hope they will. That was the hope that they held for Jesus before Easter. But when they saw his resurrected body, when they saw him face to face, their hope was resurrected. And it was a living hope because it was based upon a living Lord. And Peter, who was one of the disciples who saw the empty tomb, who saw the risen Jesus, he recognizes this. So at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, this is what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because in his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise be to God. We have a living hope. And because their hope was living, it also became an active hope. We often talk about, let's try this. I'm going off screen for just a moment, but I'm coming back. All right. We often talk about, hey, I have faith. I have faith in Jesus. I believe in him. Right? Well, how do I know that my faith is genuine? It it would be like me saying, I believe that this chair will hold me up. Well, how do you know that I believe that this chair will hold me up? You know it. When I sit down in it, their faith wasn't just living. Their faith was an active faith. They put their faith into action because before this, the disciples had been in hiding, terrified that what had happened to Jesus would happen to them. But after they saw the risen Lord, after their faith was resurrected, they became a radically different people. Instead of hiding, they coursed out into the streets and they begin to declare that God is alive. Jesus is alive. He is the Messiah. He did what he claimed to do. He has dealt with our sins. He defanged the power of sin and death in our lives. And even when persecution, even when pushback, when they began to experience these things, they didn't let up. Even when people began to kill them, and many, many, many of them gave their life for their faith, they would not renounce it. Now, I don't know about you. I've said some white lies in my lifetime. I've said some downright bad lies in my lifetime. But I would never die for something that I knew to be a lie. And this, to me, is the most powerful evidence Not only for the empty tomb, but that the disciples saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes, is that they were willing to die for that claim. So their faith, their hope was resurrected right alongside Jesus. It was a living hope. It was an active hope. And I've got to tell you that that's the kind of hope we need in a time right now. Not the kind of hope that says, oh, I really hope this virus passes quickly and we can get back to life as usual. No, we need a hope that is way more resilient than that. We need the kind of hope that I see in some of the men and women that I get to journey with. People like like Pearl. Pearl, the hope that I see in you, a woman who has experienced great grief in your life when you lost your husband way too soon, and you turn to alcohol to, to just take the edge off for a time. 
And then Jesus found you in the depths of your tears when you were crying out to him, show yourself to me. And he did. And to see the radical 180 of your life, to see the ways that you have now been sober from alcohol for 13 plus years, to see the way that God is using you to bring hope into other people's lives, to walk with other people is amazing. Tony, Mr. Pekka, when I walked into the hospital after you'd had that heart attack, when you almost died, and instead of a frown on your face, you had a smile, to see the amount of hope that you had, where you were saying, honestly, I'd love to go be with Jesus right now, but I also want to go out and serve more people, and so I'm okay if I don't die, but I'd also be okay if I did. That kind of hope is unfathomable for most people. I got a taste of it this week. I need a little water before I tell you this, though. There's a, a woman, I, I've had a lot of mothers in my life, a lot of people who have come alongside my parents to love me, to, to help shape me. I, I was a piece of work when I was a kid, and I'm a piece of work now, and it's taken a lot of work to get me to where I am. So just be grateful for all the people whose fingerprints are on my life. Um, but there was this one woman, Bonnie Brigman, who was an, one of my mothers growing up. We would do family outings together. We'd go down to the sandbar in Mexico together. She prayed with me constantly. They were praying for me. My faith was, has been founded upon hers and so many others of these mentors in my life. But over the last couple of years, I've watched as Bonnie has valiantly battled against cancer as it began to eat away at her body. And she's done so with grace and hope. And over the last couple of weeks, that cancer took a real nasty turn. And I began to see pictures on social media of her family at her bedside, just spending the last moments with her before her mortal body gave up the struggle. I, I, I'm grateful in a way for the quarantine because it gave them so much uninterrupted time. But I was frustrated by it because I could not go and be there too and to, to tell her how much I loved her. But man, have I, do I love her. And on Tuesday, Bonnie's body gave up the struggle. She breathed her last breath. She went home to be with Jesus. And on one hand, I grieve because I miss her. And I can't even begin to imagine how much her family grieves her death. And yet, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as those whose hope is found in a living Savior and in his promise that although we will experience pain and brokenness and trouble in this world, and make no mistake, we are experiencing pain and brokenness and trouble in this world, we can take heart that because of what he did on the cross, the brokenness of this life, the brokenness of our bodies, the brokenness of a virus that steals lives wantonly, the brokenness of a... uh, you know, of our, our ability to make money right now. Some of you are out of work. The brokenness of that, the brokenness of marriages and ultimately death. None of those things get the last word. He does because of the cross. And because he rose from the dead, it is the exclamation point that he has risen. He has overcome. He is living. And so therefore, so too is our hope. 
My guess is there are some of you here today that are listening right now that desperately need that hope, that desperately need the breath of our God who breathed life into our lungs to breathe new life into your hope. Because all you can see right now are your circumstances and they're bleak. And what I want you to hear this morning, if you hear nothing else, is that we have hope because Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, what you are walking through will not get the last word, even, even if we never get back to a normal time when we can shake someone's hand and hug somebody, even if it steals your breath and your life, it still doesn't have to get the last word. God does. And that is a gift that Jesus paid for with his own body 2,000 years ago when he hung on a cross, our Passover lamb gave his life so we could be passed over from the brokenness of this life. No, we won't avoid pain. No, we won't avoid trouble. But we get to be the kind of people who hold out hope in the midst of trouble, knowing that regardless of how bad this dark valley we're walking through gets, regardless of how uneven the ground, regardless of how many times we stumble, he's right there with us. He'll help us back up. And he's walking right beside us. And we, like Bonnie, will get to spend eternity with him. This is just a moment in the scope of eternity. And so if you desperately need new life breathed into your hope today, I just want to invite you to bow your head with me and pray. (laughs) Jesus, Thank you for your willingness to die for me. I don't deserve it. I don't even understand it. But I accept the gift that you purchased on the cross. And I choose to follow you as my Lord. I choose to order my life around you to fix my eyes on you, not on my circumstances, not on the storms that are raging around me. I spent too much time focused on them and I keep sinking in the waters of despair. So I choose to fix my eyes on you. Who stands above them is not overwhelmed by them, is not surprised by them. Because I trust, Jesus, that you can lead me through. And I trust that because you overcame the grave, you will overcome the brokenness of my life. Help yourself to me. Show me what it means to trust you, to sit down in you, to act on my faith. Jesus, I pray these things in your name. Amen. If you prayed that today, whether it was for the 10th time or the first time, I want to know, because I'll tell you this. You are not promised that the the road ahead is going to be pain-free and even. You're not. But you are promised that he's with you 
and he will see you through. And we want to walk with you as well. To the best of our ability during this season where we can't be face-to-face, maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's a text message from time to time. Maybe it's a Zoom meeting. Whatever it happens to be, we want to walk with you, pray with you, and encourage you as you follow your shepherd, your risen Lord. Because he's alive, our hope's alive. And let's respond to that now. Let's celebrate the gift of new life and new hope that we find in our risen Savior. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in Stand.
There's a part of me that wishes that we could have all been here, but there's another part of me that is just reveling in the idea that because we have been forced to not be here, so many more people have the opportunity to hear the hope because I know that there's a lot more of you that are watching today than would have otherwise been watching. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that, that the church though, isn't the only thing that's empty today. So is the grave. So is the lies of the enemy. As he whispers in our ear, you're a failure. You're defined by your faults. And so is our fear of death. Yes, we might taste death. Yes, this is a difficult time we walk through. But we walk with a hope that transcends our circumstances. And I just want to close with a declaration of praise to our Father. It's the one that we read during our service. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
Praise be to you, God, our Father, and to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because in your great mercy, you have given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope because we have a living Lord. And his invitation to us is not simply to rest in that hope, but to live out of that hope. That we would be a people who have tasted and seen he is good and we share that hope with others. How can you do that? Well, we, we, you, can, you can share the link to this. You can share, other people can participate. You can also pray for them, reach out to them, encourage them, have Zoom calls with them. Don't forget about the people that you would otherwise see. You guys, my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, scattered all over this county and at this point all over this country you are an ambassador of this hope not because of anything inherently redeemable about you but because our father loves us because Jesus was willing to die for us and because his Holy Spirit is in us so now go be the church have a wonderful Easter Sunday love you